Alright, well hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Mining Matters, a mine safety podcast presented by Fisher Phillips. My name is Chris Peterson and with me as always is my partner, Arthur Wolfson. Arthur, how are you doing today? Cold today, Chris. It's winter has arrived. So, you know, I gotta say I was away in a some warm weather climate for the holidays and uh, it's think the calendar has turned we're getting that reminder so yeah well at least you survived the holidays yeah we we're recording this just after the holiday break and yeah it's kind of getting right back to it so all right well on this episode we are going to discuss the final rule requiring a safety program for surface mobile equipment this is also known as the powered haulage rule that we've discussed previously on the podcast and Arthur, we've done a couple webinars on this too as well, I think. Yeah, you know, this has been something that's been talked about for years now, and it's sort of a unique animal in the regulatory world and the MSHA world is that it it spanned two different administrations of two different political parties. So uh, this actually began during Assistant Secretary Zataslo's regime. He was President Trump's Assistant Secretary for MSHA. And then when um, President Biden was elected, MSHA just continued on with it. And and here we are. So I don't know if this is a, a an example of bipartisanship, dare I say, maybe. But regardless, <laughs> it's a unique animal. Uh, but there's a lot to talk about here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we'll, we'll discuss some of this stuff today. Some key provisions of this final rule. It was published in the Federal Register on, on December 20th, 2023. So not quite the the last minute drop of the new year. We had heard it was going to come out by the end of 2023, and we were almost right. I guess we're basically right. So, yeah, today we'll discuss some of the key provisions of this rule that you know operators should be aware of, and the compliance challenged by these provisions, and some best practices going forward. So, Arthur, what do you think about some of these provisions in this rule? Let's let's just jump right into it. Well, yeah, and I'll, I'll go through some of the high points, and then, Chris, I'll kick it back over to you, and you can give us uh, your, your first thoughts on some what you take away as the key component. Well, first of all, when the, when the proposal came out, it was initially discussed that it would only apply to mines with six or more miners. Uh, that has been dropped in response to a lot of comments, frankly, that, that said that this should apply universally. Uh, MSHA agreed and will apply to all mines. Uh, there is uh, some language in the preamble, though, stating that there will be some specific compliance assistance for the smaller mines. So we'll talk more about that in a bit. But it continues to exclude belt conveyors. Uh, it continues to exclude underground equipment. It applies only to surface mobile equipment. We'll talk about this in more detail, but one of the key provisions that has remained is that there there needs to be a designated responsible person to oversee compliance with this rule. Um, that was the the subject of a lot of comments. Um, frankly, I think a lot more comments than than is reflected in the preamble. Um, uh, it was the subject of a lot of comments, but it remains. It excludes manually powered tools such as wheelbarrows. There's a definition of surface mobile equipment in there. 
you know, which which Emsha claims it is is sufficiently clear. I, I, I don't know. There's definitions are always may appear clear at the beginning, but but the definition of surface mobile equipment is wheeled, skid mounted, track mounted, or rail mounted equipment capable of moving or being moved in any powered equipment that transports people, equipment, or materials, excluding belt conveyors at surface mines and surface areas of underground mines. I'm sure that'll be the subject of litigation for years to come. But the effective date is a big deal. Um, the, the rule uh, is effective January 19th of this year. However, MSHA is giving a, a, essentially a six-month grace period stating that compliance must occur on July 17th, 2024. So there's going to be some um, uh, compliance assistance in the interim. I'm sure some discussion. I'm sure at the various conferences we attend, there will be a lot of discussion. As we've discussed, this will require a plan. MSHA's calling it a safety program. It's essentially a plan. Most of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with plans of various types that are required under the MSHA system. Unlike the coal uh, roof control and ventilation plans, it will not require a formal approval by the district manager. However, MSHA has said that during regular inspections, the inspectors will review it for compliance. So it's not, you know, there, there is going to be an element of oversight. It just won't have the formal approval process like we've seen in, in some other areas. Now for the guts of what is required in the plan, MSHA has said that there must be four specific items in the plan. And this is, this is particularly important. Um, it must include actions that the operator will take to, to identify hazards related to mobile equipment, surface mobile equipment, and reduce risks related to those hazards. Number two, it must include steps that the operator will take to develop and maintain procedures and schedules for routine maintenance and non-routine repairs of surface mobile equipment. MSHA did say that to the extent that your maintenance programs already comply with this, they don't anticipate you would need to do anything new unless your risk assessment that you take per step one uh, identifies the need. Item number three, and this is one that's gotten a lot of attention, um, it needs to include steps that the operator will take to identify currently available and newly emerging feasible technologies related to surface mobile equipment. And then item number four, it needs to include steps that the operator will take for training of miners and other persons affected by surface mobile equipment to ensure their safety. It must be updated at least annually or more frequently as circumstances dictate, such as if there are accidents, if there are near misses, and that type of thing. Here's an interesting point. It says that it must include input from miners and their representatives, both in developing and updating the plan. I thought that was interesting because it doesn't just say the designated miners reps. It has to include miners potentially separate separate and apart from the 
designated miners are up. So that, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that shakes out. And then the, the program itself has to be made available to inspectors and miners and their representatives. That That's pretty much as to be expected. So those are the key provisions. There's a lot there, I think, in my opinion. There's a lot to pick apart. And so let me kick it over to you, Chris. When when you read this, what were your what were your takeaways? What were the big the big takeaways you had from it? I think potential agent liability popped out at me as soon as they said responsible person. I wonder how MSHA is going to go about enforcing this in terms of, you know, if we have a plan identifying potential hazards, let's say we get a citation for, you know, what MSHA would call a safety defect on mobile equipment. Do you get a citation for that and a citation for uh, not following your plan? You know, granted, I am somewhat jaded by the process, I suppose. You know, we're always looking at, okay, what can go wrong and anticipate, right? Like, well, that's our job. But yeah, yeah, for sure, right? So I think those are, you know, those are kind of, you know, me looking at this. I think one one key provision too, Arthur, is that um, independent contractors are going to have to develop and implement their programs as well. And MSHA put some language in the preamble saying the operator may choose to integrate independent contractors' programs into the mine operator's own program, but basically saying operators and contractors, you know, figure it out. Right. Basically, if you both have plans, figure out how you're going to make both of those plans work. You know, and as we all know, you know, with MSHA's MSHA's policies, they can cite an operator, they can cite an independent contractor or both for an alleged violation. So I think that is another potential quagmire, if you will. I think we're really going to have to wait for some compliance assistance. Right. I'll be interested to see what all MSHA comes out with in terms of of guidance, right? A template. I know a lot of operators have asked me like, well, we have a lot of this information already, right? Whether that's in a maintenance program or even in a training plan, for example. And I've said to those operators that have asked saying, well, regardless of whether you have that material existing already, I'm just going to want to see all of that material compiled and put into a separate written program not just left in, say, you know, a maintenance manual, for example, we're going to have to take the steps to gather that information and put it all in one place, right? Because, you know, as you've noted, once an MSHA inspector's out there, they say, okay, let let me review your plan. You know, they're all going to want to see that in one place, right? Not in a half a dozen binders and or other information, right, where where operators might keep that. So I think that's a, a key component. Also, as you noted, operators aren't necessarily required to to develop new maintenance or repair procedures, but then there's also language in the preamble that says you can modify existing maintenance and repair procedures based on the newly conducted risk assessments. And so that leads me to believe that MSHA's expectation is, you know, we're not necessarily, operators aren't necessarily going to be able to just rely on what they already have, right? But go through the steps of, you know, identifying potential hazards and then what, you know, and obviously, you know, propose action to, you know, eliminate or prevent or minimize whatever the case may be of uh, the existence of those hazards, right? And so I think the expectation is from MSHA, right, that that operators are going to have to take a fresh look at potential hazards involved in, in surface powered haulage equipment. So I think that 
already probably would inform us of, you know, what hopefully we see from the agency in terms of guidance. And that's an interesting question is I've gotten several questions already, you know, just from the publication date to now, which is a span of about 10 days or so. What do operators do now, right? I'm kind of, I, I, I've told a couple of operators like, well, let's wait and see what MSHA comes up with in terms of compliance assistance. I don't know if they're going to provide a template or some sort of guidance, but basically, okay, you know, we've got this published rule. We've got a six month grace period to comply. Let's wait and see what all MSHA can come up with. Although I suppose, meanwhile, right, we can take steps in terms of starting to review maintenance plans, you know, what all is in there. And then certainly the training, the training part of that as well. What are your thoughts on that, Arthur? Yeah, you know, I think that to comply with this rule, I think it's going to require both a system for operators to develop, you know, once they designate their responsible person, that they come up with systems for conducting these hazard analyses, risk analyses, that they have a system for analyzing the new technology. Now, it doesn't say you have to adopt it, but you do have to analyze it. So if you're if you're going to choose not to adopt it, I think it has to it's got to be some some consideration as to why. And then and the training piece too. And then the documentation. I see this, I see compliance with this rule to be very document intensive beyond just the written program that's required by the rule. Because in order to show, you know, the, the written program is going to say, what you're going to do. I think in some part of the discussion, Emsha described it as an action-based approach or something like that, rather than a prescriptive approach. The program is going to be the actions, but it's the, you know, that's like your game plan, but the implementation of it is to show that you have adequately implemented it. I think you're going to need to maintain a lot of documentation to show the hazard analysis, the risk analysis, the maintenance program. Like you said, Chris, if you ultimately conclude that your existing systems are sufficient, I think you're going to need documentation to show that you considered that and arrived at that conclusion. The training piece, the technology piece, how was this all considered? Because then you look at the inspector is going to come in and be reviewing both your plan and then also the actions you took in furtherance of your plan. How are you going to demonstrate to that inspector that you've taken those actions? The only way, unless the inspector is sitting right there with you during the meetings, is through documentation. And that's going to require systems to develop and maintain that documentation. I see this as a very document intensive rule in order to comply and show compliance. I also just want to touch on the contractor issue real quick because, you know, in the proposed rule, MSHA used the term contractor three times in the entire proposed rule. They basically punted on the issue of contractors. And 
they were called out on that in the comments. And I think they took a little, they kind of got their back up a little bit about being called out. If you read the tone of that discussion is like, well, it should have just been obvious. Well, when you mention it three times, that's not obvious. And essentially they've said, like you said, they said that the expectations are that contractors will have their own safety program, but there may be times when the production operator may wish to integrate the contractor in with their own. Well, especially for our production operator listeners, but also for our contractor listeners, that's got to be made clear at the outset. I think well, that contractor relationship, whose plan are we following or whose plan is the contractor following? What's the expectation for the contractor? Because what we don't want is for there to be misunderstanding about that. And then there's a question of whether anything was being followed. So I think there's going to be a lot of planning that's going to have to occur in order for this to be uh, followed, this rule. Those are my thoughts. I'm just kind of shooting from the hip on some of this, but I think that's kind of my thoughts uh, upon reading it. Yeah, and, and I think those are those are exactly where I'm coming from as well, right? So, I mean, we can just take this kind of one at a time. So identifying technologies, I I remember back when the Rules to Live By initiative was, was first started, you know, and MSHA had identified you know, the, the, the most commonly or frequently cited standards involved in, um, you know, fatal or serious accidents. Many had to do with powered haulage equipment. And they came up with a list of best practices, right? You know, rear view cameras, you know, those types of things, right? Implementing additional technologies. And, and I think it's interesting that MSHA's kind of taken a different approach here, putting the burden on the, on the operator saying, okay, you can identify all of these technologies, but then basically tell us why you either are or are not implementing those technologies. And I don't know offhand, right, if, if cost prohibitiveness would be a factor in deciding not to implement an, an existing technology. Certainly, if a technology isn't proven or if it doesn't exist, you know, for example, or is in development and we haven't seen a working prototype, you know, something like that, right? A legitimate reason. But I think it's interesting that MSH is really kind of putting that burden on the operator to say, well, why wouldn't you implement some of these, these systems, you know, whether it's proximity detection for surface equipment. And so I think that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, right? That identifying technologies where it's no longer necessarily I'm just saying, oh, these are best practices to use these, but then the operators, you know, really going to have to take a hard look at, you know, what exactly is out there, what could they feasibly, you know, use or implement in their own operation. And then as you mentioned, Arthur, right? So say an operator has committed to using, let's just say prox systems on all of their equipment, then here comes an, a contractor who uh, is not committing to using prox. How do you resolve that? And, you know, so going to your point with the independent contractor issue, I think, yeah, that absolutely has to be a discussion that is had with contractors coming on your property and then going back to really sort of resolving the differences, potential differences between a contractor plan and an operator plan. And I think that's just one example, right? Another could be supervision, right? I know that's a hot topic between an operator and a contractor. 
But, you know, who ultimately is going to be responsible to make sure that a contractor is following its own plan, right? So, yeah, I think, uh, and, you know, maybe we're overthinking this. Maybe maybe MSHA is not going to approach this at all, but I think we're raising these issues saying MSHA certainly could approach it in this way. Now, I think, Chris, I think we are thinking about how this may play out, and and I think that the, the questions that you raise, and especially in terms of the, you know, consideration of technology and also the risk assessment, the maintenance schedule and all that, is how is that going to be evaluated? What's the benchmark that's going to be used? You know, MSHA said they did not want to have a prescriptive rule, you know, saying you must do X, Y, and Z maintenance activities or what. And there is some appeal to that. I, I get that. I And I, I'm not necessarily saying the agency was wrong, but playing it forward, how is that going to be evaluated? You know, it, it legally, when you have an open-ended standard, you know, what does that mean? It's evaluated by the reasonable person test. What would a reasonable person familiar with the mining industry and protective purposes of the standard act? How would that person act? And, you know, that, that standard is the subject of volumes and volumes of case law, you know, because it's, it's fact specific, but somebody's going to have to make a call. Somebody within the operator is going to make a call and then you have an MSHA inspector come in and, and they may have a different view and then you get cited. And then if it's litigated, then the judge is going to make a call. So this is all going to have to be hashed out as issues come up. And, and, you know, the thing with citations, a lot of times when we're talking about citations, you know, the abatement issue isn't front and center. Guard is missing. You fix the guard. Housekeeping issue. You clean it up. Whatever. We're fighting about other things. But we may have cases here where the abatement issue is front and center. Do you have to, if MSHA is going to allege you didn't adequately consider the technology, what's the abatement? Well, you got to go consider that proc system now or something. You may not think that's the right thing to do, and we may be fighting over the abatement issue front and center. I don't know. We'll have to see how it plays out. There's a, There are a lot of questions in my mind, but you know, it's an interesting rule in a lot of respects. Yeah, absolutely, right? And and I guess, you know, moving on to the, the designation of a responsible person, right? I think um, I think that's a key component of the rule. You know, I've had to remind several operators after the proposed rule came out, and I think the initial reaction was, oh, this rule is not that big of a deal, right? We'll just come up with a, a, a written program and call it good. What concerns, if any, Arthur, do you have about designation of a responsible person? Well, number one is who's selected, obviously. We, we want to take that selection seriously. And one thing we didn't note that did come out in the, in the final rule that's different from the proposed rule is you can designate multiple responsible people. Um, it doesn't have to be just one person. So there is that. So you can you can make that choice. But, you know, we talked earlier about the systems we think are going to have to be implemented and the, the steps that are, you know, that's going to, under the law, is going to fall to that person. So are we picking the right person? And the, does that person understand all that is being required of him or her? 
So that's number one. You know, and then from the legal standpoint, and you mentioned it earlier, Chris, is this going to be fodder for individual liability? If this person's decisions are second-guessed by MSHA in an enforcement action, if an accident were to occur, if some other unfortunate consequence is going to occur, are we then going back to this person? And that would be the the ultimate of Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, this person's going to have to make calls along the way to comply with the rule. What if those calls are then second-guessed? You know, that's that that really puts that person in the spotlight. It, it may be advisable to have multiple responsible people just to take that off of one individual. So I, I didn't like that provision. I assisted some some clients in putting forth comments, arguing why it should be removed. I still don't like it, but it's here. So we're going to have to work with our employees as best we can to make sure they are up on it, what their responsibilities are, and then also to support them in, in case uh, MSHA second guesses their choices. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's what I was getting at, right, is this potential for agent liability. I, I guess I was pleasantly surprised that MSHA expanded the language in the final rule from a responsible person to a number of responsible persons, which frankly, you know, may make the most sense, right? And, and you mentioned also, Arthur, the, this performance-based standard, right? And so I want to remind everybody that these responsible persons, right, are relying on their experience in the mining industry. And they're really right relying on that in terms of using common sense to make these calls in terms of identifying hazards and what can we do to eliminate them. Yes, I think MSHA is a reactionary agency in terms of accident investigations. So they can always come in and say, oh, you know, this person didn't do this or, or didn't do it adequately or didn't do enough. But I think to your point, Arthur, right, this document intensive rule documenting the actions that an operator takes, what information the responsible person is reviewing, the basis for his or her decisions. And I think the more people you get involved in that, right, I think the stronger program that you have. So I, I, I don't necessarily want operators walking away from this rule thinking, we're going to, we're going to, you know, designate a responsible person. And this, this person will be the first in line to, you know, face potential individual liability if, if something goes wrong. And I don't want folks to, to walk away with that impression. I think we're mentioning this, you know, as, as a possible, right. Possible enforcement outcome, you know, MSHA comes in and starts, you know, questioning everything an operator has done in light of a, of an accident. But, um, yeah, I think the more information and documentation that you have where you're evaluating the processes, maybe that you already have in existence or already using, but the more documentation that you can provide, you know, as a basis for the decisions that you're making in your plan or for your plan, right, the better off you are. I think that's, I think that's kind of where I come out on, on that designation of a responsible person issue. So going forward, I guess we'll have to see what um, compliance assistance MSHA puts forth. You know, in the past with the workplace exam rule, they had info sessions, they had written guidance. 
I'm expecting something similar. Um, they've especially you know, mentioned for small operators, they'll have some specific guidance. I think that would be welcomed. I think um, as operators are developing their systems and their plans, pay attention to that. And we will as well. We will update our friends with, with any information we find out. But I, I think that will be of assistance from the agency. I think that will be helpful. So um, we'll just have to see. We have six months till compliance is expected. So I, I think that uh, we'll have to see what comes from the agency and what questions come from the regulated community during that time. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think engaging with the agency during this this six month grace period is really going to be key, right? Try to get as much idea of you know what these terms mean, what exactly equipment is covered. You know how to address the the technology issue. You know I'm really hoping that MSHA will come out with with some guidance. And frankly, not just for the operators, right? We've seen this time and again when these new rules come out, and you know inspectors may have interpretations of the rule that differ from what stakeholders have heard in these in these meetings in these you know MSHA policy discussions. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, for some good, solid education across the board, some good guidance from there. And you're right. I mean, once we start getting that, we'll have an idea of, you know, what operators are, are looking for and then certainly be able to have more discussion in light of whatever policy or guidance that MSHA comes out with. So, Arthur, what do you think about a challenge of this rule? Do you think this rule is going to be challenged? You know, Chris... It's hard to say. I think that, you know, there's, there's a rule can be challenged on the basis uh, on whether there was a basis for even having a rule. And then it can be challenged on individual provisions. Um, this is a unique rule because it is so non-prescriptive. Um, and I think, I, I wonder if that would make a challenge more difficult on the individual provisions. You know, I think it's worth pointing out and, I don't think anybody would disagree that mobile equipment safety is critical. We see far too many accidents on mobile equipment. So that makes me wonder whether this rule is really ripe for a challenge. I haven't heard anything about there being a potential challenge. So I tend to think that this is one that's probably not, but you never know. You never know what people's takeaway is on it. I think operators should instead of looking for a potential challenge to the rule or provisions should really start preparing now to comply with it because I think it is going to go into effect. Yeah, no, I think that's really good advice. I think um, it's definitely, it's interesting to see what which operators take what stance uh, in terms of, you know, published rules. But I agree, right? I think at the end of the day, I don't necessarily see a challenge to this rule I think our time is best spent at this point, you know, looking at our maintenance programs, what we have in place there, and then the training aspect as well. Well, as we move along uh, with the year, as we've said, we will keep this issue of this rule front and center. We will provide more information as we hear it. Certainly, uh, we invite anyone to reach out to either of us, email or call with any questions, any thoughts. We gave our thoughts on this. Uh, there's a lot of uh, 
very uh, smart and experienced safety professionals out there who are taking a keen interest in this and I'm sure are listening to this and I'd be interested to get your thoughts. So feel free to just drop us an email, give us a call, share your thoughts. I'd be interested to hear. Those are some of our thoughts, but um, I'm sure uh, this will be the subject for discussion as, as we roll into the new year. Absolutely. Well, I think that'll be it. So yeah, thank you everybody for joining us on this episode and we'll keep you uh, updated on any changes and you all be safe out there. Take care, everyone. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation. Thank you.